You may be seated. Our unison scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. I thought this might be an appropriate passage on this morning, specifically with us installing and ordaining deacons. Uh, Last year when we ordained and installed deacons, we looked at Acts 6, which is uh, the traditional passage dealing with deacons. Uh, Alistair Begg has said of that passage, the principle that led to the appointment of the seven seven men there in Acts 6 provided the pattern for the creation of the diaconate as a distinct office and also the pattern for the kind of service to be performed by the deacons in the church. Uh, Though it did not specifically speak of the office of deacon per se, it, it showed us a picture of what diaconal service looks like. And we talked about last year, if you'll recall, Uh, That diaconal work is gospel work. Gospel work because it increases the audience for the gospel, because it reinforces the message of the gospel, because it enables the proclamation of the gospel, and because it is a natural response to the gospel. And we'll see many of those same lessons in today's text as well. You know, deacons are not the only ones who are called to serve the church. Rather, they lead us all in serving the church. They set an example for us. And it's not an example that they simply came up with, but rather it follows the example of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who calls us all to service. And so we look at this text today that highlights the attitude that Christ had towards service. And we know that this is a prescription for our deacons, for our elders, and for each and every one of us who is gathered here today as those who are called according to the name of Christ. Let's read together now the words of Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, and let us remember that this is the inspired word of God. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for in it we hear the voice of Jesus. 
And as we hear his voice, we pray that you would truly speak to our hearts. Convict us of our sin. And call us to rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours through him. Through his great sacrifice on the cross. Teach us to serve as Jesus served. And I pray that now as we look at this passage. That you might truly speak through this word. That it might not be my voice. But rather the voice of God that speaks to all of us. Myself included. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want what's best for our children. You know, I suppose I, I try to be an advocate for my children. I know my parents tried to advocate for me in many settings. I, I think of this one time when I was in junior high. Actually, I was in ninth grade. In ninth grade, and I was in a social studies class. And, and I, I know this is hard for you guys to believe. But, but I might not have been the most respectful teenager in the history of the world. And, and I might have been a little bit of a know-it-all, and I might have been a little bit snotty toward a teacher once. Maybe. Well, that hypothetical teacher was Mr. Kurtz. I'll never forget it. And uh, one semester, it was the first quarter of the semester, actually, I, I, I tended to talk back a lot. You know, I thought I knew everything. And uh, I did really well on all the tests, all the assignments. But when my report card came out after the first marking period, I had a B in the class. And I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I, I don't know how I could possibly have a B in this class. I, I got an A on every test. I've done every homework assignment. I, I got perfect, perfect A's on everything. I, I just don't understand how I could have gotten a B in the class. So my mom went up to the school because she was going to advocate for me. She was going to support me. She was going to make sure that, that my case was heard. Well, when she came back, she mentioned the fact that I had talked back to the teacher time and time again and asked me if, if that was true, and I kind of had to, well, it might have been a little true. And, and she said, well, I told the teacher that that won't happen again this next quarter, that he can be assured that you will keep your mouth shut and you'll do your work. And I did. I did. That next quarter, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And I just kept my mouth shut the whole quarter. And, and I got great grades again. But when the report came out at the end of the semester, I had a B plus still. And my mom said, Peter, have you been talking back to that teacher again? And I said, no, I haven't. I promise. And, and she, she went back up to the school and advocated for me again. And a funny thing, I, this is hard to believe that's even true, but it is. You can ask my mom next time she's here. She asked the teacher, well, what's going to happen? Peter says he, he hasn't been talking back at all anymore. And he said, well, that's true. But he got his friends to talk back for him. And so I marked him off for that. I said, well, come on. You know, and, and she advocated for me. And she convinced the teacher that, indeed, I did deserve an A in that class. And because of her advocacy for me, I got an A in that class. An A that I deserved, but... But she had gotten it for me. She advocated for me. We do that for our, our kids. We'll, we'll, we'll fight a battle for our kids, won't we? We'll, we'll go ahead and speak hard words for our kids. And that's what we see here in this passage. We see a, a mother who is willing to do this. A mother who is willing to come to Jesus and to, to advocate for her kids. To be their, their greatest support, their greatest spokesperson. We see it in the mother of James and John. Now we need to understand as we read through this text that 
it, it seems like it's kind of coming out of the blue that she's asking for this thing, but, it, but it's not completely out of the blue. If, if we had read back in chapter 19 of Matthew, we would have seen that Jesus, uh, in verse 28, is speaking to the disciples. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious thrones, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see that this is kind of a response to that. When, when she starts talking about them sitting on two thrones on his right and left, it's not just out of nowhere. Jesus has been talking about the thrones that they'll be sitting on. And so she's come to him and, and said this. And, and as we synthesize this together with the other Gospels, as they talk about it, we, we come to learn that really it's not just that James and John's mother has come and, and made this plea on their behalf. They've kind of put her up to it. They've asked her, hey, Mom, would you go say something to Jesus? Would you go advocate for us? Make our case. Get us a a good spot, if you will. And it makes a certain amount of sense that they would do this, you see, because as we also look from the different Gospels and we read specifically the, the tellings of who is at the foot of the cross when Jesus dies, we see a group of women as we kind of merge those different groups together and, and, and kind of line the people up with who it says is there, each one, we come to this conclusion that most likely, almost certainly I would say, that the mother of James and John is also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which makes her Jesus' aunt. It makes James and John his cousins. And so it would make sense, wouldn't it, that, that they would think, being family, surely, they get the best seats, right? Because they're not just some guys who've joined him along the way. They're family. They grew up with him. They've been with him all along. And, and what better way than to assure this than to have their mom go ask about it? You know, she has kind of authority to a certain degree. After all, she, she probably babysat Jesus. She used to change his diaper. She took care of him. She has a voice where she could say, hey, Jesus, you should do this. And Jesus will listen to her. And so it is that the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes and makes this request. She basically says, which one of these thrones that you've talked about, Jesus, are going to belong to my sons? It was a question that she asked, not just out of pure curiosity. She asked the question from a selfish perspective, She asked the question, lacking understanding. But even so, she asked the question, and in so doing, displayed faith. First of all, the the idea that's from a selfish perspective. Uh, She she asks specifically for the seat that is on his right and on his left. These are places of honor. They're the primary places, the best seats in the house, if you will. Uh, You know, if if, uh, you came over to my house and and all the chairs were filled. My kids were sitting in a couple of the chairs, and I was sitting there. You know, and somebody's going to have to sit on the floor. You, you walk in. I'm not going to say, hey, go ahead and sit on the floor. I'll ask my children to move and sit on the floor, perhaps, and give you a seat. Because, because as a guest, they want to honor you as a guest and, and give you a place to sit that's a place of honor and not have to sit in the worst seat on the floor. And so it is here that this is kind of the idea with the seat on the right and on the left. It's a place of honor. First of all, the, the seat to the right, that is the place of highest 
honor. We know from the Psalms where, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And in Mark 14, Jesus says, I am, you will see the Lord, I'm sorry, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And later, when Jesus had died and risen again, we read in Mark 16, that he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the highest honor, to sit at his right hand. And so it is that on the left hand, that's the other spot nearest to him, the highest, second highest honor. So these are the two best places, the two best spots, the two highest honors. That's what she's asking for. That's kind of a selfish attitude, isn't it? To say, give me the best. I want the best. I need the best. It's certainly not a servant's mindset. It's certainly not the mindset that we're called to. You see, Christ Jesus has served us. He has served us selflessly. He has served us uh, through pain and through trial and, and through sacrifice. And we, in response, should serve him. We should have the kind of mindset that's spoken of in Luke 1, where it speaks of how God has delivered us from the hand of our enemies. Therefore, we might serve him without fear. Or, or I consider Peter's mother-in-law, who in Matthew 8 we read about was ill, and Jesus comes in and we're told that he touched her hand, and her fever left her. And in the very next clause of that sentence it says, and she rose and began to serve him. You see, Jesus serves us, and we in response serve him. I love what Al said earlier in the prayer that he prayed. Just that idea that we're not trying to buy any favor with God through our gifts of offerings or through our gifts of service. See, we we don't earn his favor in any way through those things. He has granted us his favor graciously through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we respond to that favor by serving him. It is always needing to be that order. We need to understand that, that what we do proceeds from what is true of us in Christ Jesus. We can never earn God's favor, but it has been earned for us. And so it is that we need to not have a, a self-centered mindset, but have a Christ-centered mindset. That needs to be the mindset we take. The question that was asked was asked from a selfish mindset. It was also asked from a mindset of lacking understanding. Consider the context here. Just in the previous chapter, chapter 19, and into chapter 20, the first half, uh, Jesus told a story, actually, uh, uh, about the laborers in the vineyard. It's a story where, where the last to arrive were paid first and where all people were given what they deserve, what they deserve, but some people received even more graciously. And at the beginning and the end of that parable, before and after, Jesus says this in Matthew 19.30 and then again in Matthew 20.16. Many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. You see, we need to understand this kingdom principle because there's no, no better example of this than Christ Jesus himself, of course. 
Christ Jesus, who, who by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. Christ Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ Jesus, who was the all in all existing eternally. No greater one than him. And yet he took on human flesh in the form of a little baby. And he laid down his life on a wooden cross for you and for me. The greatest became the least. But then also, having died, he rose again. And because of his sacrificial service, because of his atoning death, because of his faithfulness through all, he was risen from the dead and ascended on high, and he sits even now at the right hand of God on high. The least became the greatest. He, he talked about this, actually, in chapter 20, right before, in the verses immediately before our text today. Verses 17 through 19 of chapter 20. They were going up to Jerusalem. He said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He, he told them this. Many times he told them this. And somehow they missed it. How did they miss it? Well, they missed it the same way we miss it. The same way we miss it every time we sin, we forget that truth. Every time we, we fail to trust God, we forsake the truth we know. Because we are broken. Every part of us is broken. We're, we're morally broken. We are physically broken. We are cognitively broken. We are broken in every way. But Christ Jesus comes to restore us, to redeem us, to make us whole once again so that we might understand that in God's economy, things are upside down, or rather, in our economy, things are upside down, right? God has it right, and the way we see things is backwards. It was, after all, just as he had promised. They, they would share in his glory one day, but they needed to understand, you see, that, that to share in Christ's glory... One must share first in his suffering. That's a key principle. Let me say that again. To share in Christ's glory, one must first share in his suffering. In Christ's kingdom, glory only comes by means of the cross. And so it is that if we are to follow Jesus, we must die to ourselves. In Luke 9, he puts it this way. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We must deny ourselves to follow him. That's why we, we hear it time and time again. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek, seek first that. We pray in the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the glory. Thine is the power. Not mine, mine, mine. But thine. And yet my heart... And I trust probably your heart as well has a, a natural reflex to say, mine, mine, mine. I want it my way. I want to do things the way I want to do them. I want things to work out to benefit me. I, I, I want it to be mine. But Jesus says, no. Whoever would save his life would, must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. It's as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, 
When Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him to take up his cross and die. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, if Jesus hired a marketing agency, they'd probably tell him he's doing a rotten job. You know, Jesus, when when you tell people that they have to die to themselves, when you tell them they have to endure this suffering if they're going to follow you, when you tell them that it's going to be hard and there's going to be persecution and, and they must deny themselves and follow the hard path, you're not very likely to attract followers, Jesus. Much better to put together a book with a, a big smiling face on the front of it that, that tells everybody these promises that everything will be wonderful if only they trust in you. Everything will be easy. But Jesus does not do that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He, he doesn't beat around the bush. He just shoots straight. He says, this is how it will be. And so it is with them when they say, yeah, Jesus, we, we can drink the cup that you drink. We can do that. He says, you do not know what you are asking. You see there, Request was lacking understanding, wasn't it? They didn't even understand what the cup was. They, they had no concept. And neither do we a lot of times. But, but we need to understand that throughout the Old Testament, this, this terminology of a cup signified suffering and wrath, retribution, and God's divine righteous punishment. Consider Ezekiel 23, verse 32. He says, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Or Jeremiah, another prophet, Chapter 25, he says, Thus says the Lord, thus the Lord God of Israel has said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or finally, Isaiah chapter 51, where another prophet says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, when when it talks about this cup, it is this righteous wrath of God that he is talking about. And that's what he was talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, he, with just tears and and sweat and, and agony, pleaded with God, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, this is what he was talking about with the cup. The cup is the suffering that he would face on the cross, the most torturous of physical deaths indeed, but even worse, the righteous wrath of a holy God as he paid the penalty for our sins. James and John have no idea what they're saying when they say we can drink your cup. And yet Jesus concedes to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me 
to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. See, we'll later see James and John both drank the cup of suffering. James would be among the first martyrs of the early church. We read about in Acts 12. John would face much persecution, would end up exiled on the island of Patmos, we read in Revelation 1. That's often the result of following Jesus. Are you ready to suffer for following Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for following Jesus? If you're not willing to suffer, then you're not ready to follow. Jesus says that might be a part of it. You need to understand that could be part of the deal. James and John didn't understand this. Neither did the other disciples either because they they hear him say this thing about you will drink my cup and and we read in verse 24 that the other 10 overhear this and they became indignant. Now their indignant nature at this is probably uh, not uh, as one commentator put it it was that of jealousy not that of holy humility. You know they they're probably upset because they've gotten beaten to the punch on the question, right? Uh, we, we wanted those seats too. Uh, the disciples show a history of seeking honor. In chapter 18 of Matthew, they came wanting to know who was going to be the greatest. We have this passage here. At the Lord's Supper, once again, they're going to argue over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That, that's what they do. And that's what we do too. We want honor. I know I do. I, 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 I want to serve God so humbly, and then I want everybody to know how humble I am and to applaud me for it. That's where we all are, isn't it? In our heart of hearts, that's where we all are. We want honor. We want glory. But it should not be ours. It should be Christ Jesus. That's the way of the world. We need to understand. And as Jesus says, it shall not be that way among you. We need to trust in him instead. We need to exercise faith. At the end of the day, that's what even these disciples had, these misguided disciples who were so messed up and did all the wrong things. They still had faith. Imperfect faith. Very imperfect faith. But faith nonetheless. I say this because because. They asked the question, didn't they? They said, when you reign, when you sit on your throne, we want those seats next to you. They didn't say, you know, if things work out at the end of the day and your plan, you know, works out like you planned, Jesus, and, and, and all the dominoes fall the right way and you end up on top, we want to be right there with you. It wasn't an if question for them. It was a when question. They trusted that Jesus would do what he said he would do, that he would be what he said he would be, and we need to trust him as well. And it's only as we trust him, only with faith, that we can live as Jesus demands. In these final verses of chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, notice the inverse parallelism here. He says, whoever would be great must be your servant, and whoever would be high must be low. Whoever would be first, even higher, must be your slave, even lower. And finally, he says, even as the Son of Man, the very highest, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, the very lowest.
It's only by faith that we can live this way. It's only by faith that we can trust in Jesus as our ransom. You know, that term ransom, it's the same term we saw back just not too many weeks ago in Leviticus 27 when we looked at the price that was paid to buy back one who was dedicated to the Lord, whether it be an animal or a person. But it's also a commercial term that's used to pay, pay for the release of someone who has been in bondage or slavery. And so it is that our bondage, our slavery is to sin, death, and the devil, and, and Jesus has paid a redemption price. What is that redemption price? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.18, You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As we trust in that fact, we can live as Jesus calls us to live. We can then understand, as William Hendrickson puts it, what Jesus is saying here is that in the kingdom over which he reigns, greatness is obtained by pursuing a course of action which is exact opposite to that which is followed in the unbelieving world. Greatness consists in self-giving, the outpouring of the self in service of others for the glory of God. To be great means to love. And if we know this to be true, if we know that God has so loved us, then we must also love others. In closing, I just want to say one more thing. Notice that he says this ransom is paid to save Many. He doesn't say it's paid as a ransom for all, but a ransom for many. So my question for you this day is, are you among the many for whom Jesus paid that ransom? You can know that you are if you trust in him. If you trust in him, if you cease to try to save yourself, if you cease to try to earn God's affection if you cease to try to merit his approval and rather fall at the foot of the cross and trust in the payment of Christ Jesus then you too can be among those many for whom he paid that ransom trust in him today and if you have trusted in him then the question is this if he has ransomed you what do you owe him and the answer of course is everything you owe him everything You owe him a life of service to him, to his body, the church, and to a watching world in which he has placed you to be a light reflecting his glorious radiance to everyone who sees you. Jesus is our example in this kind of service. He is far more than our example, though, He is the one who serves his servants. In Luke 12, 37, we read these words. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Let us all see that we serve 
just as Jesus has and will serve us. Please pray with me. Our Lord God, we thank you for the amazing service that has been rendered to us. It is so undeserved, so unmerited by us, and yet gained for us so graciously by Christ Jesus, who lived a holy life in our place and died an atoning death, that we might know you. Teach us to be more like him. Make us more like him. And in so doing, make us truly your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.